Putting up new buildings, we're knocking down the old We're working in the summer heat and in the winter cold And the labour power we sell, me boys, for a hard and weekly pay Produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA And whether we were born here or born in Italy in Greece, in Spain, or Ireland, in England, or Fiji We all of us are workers, united we must stand Until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land Welcome to Creatures of the Industry An ongoing series of oral history interviews With the people who made the building and construction industry in Melbourne And regional Victoria since the 1960s These podcasts are sponsored by the Concrete Gang in cooperation with Community Radio 3CR. And break a couple of concrete pores to back our lug of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our builder's labour is a name to make a man feel proud. And welcome to all our listeners. Today, our creature of the industry is Joe Chavello. Good afternoon, Joe. How are you? Very good. Thank you, Ralph. And good afternoon to you, too. It's an absolute pleasure to see you. And uh, I think we've known each other for a very long time. Yes. Probably not quite as long as you've been in the industry, though. No. That's what we're going to talk about. Now, Joe has been a participant as a subcontractor, as a major contractor and everything else in this industry over a very long period of time. But it all started somewhere. And I suspect you were born overseas, but you started here in Australia and would you like to give us the details of where you started and how it came to happen? Yes, uh, I was born in Italy, uh, in Calabria, uh, in 1945. Uh, At the age of nine, I started my apprenticeship back there. Keeping in mind that the school, those days used to be half day, so in the afternoon you had to do something, so my parents organised for me to go and start to learn a trade. Uh, by the time of 11, of course, I uh, finished school, primary school. So I was virtually doing my apprenticeship full-time unless my mother needed me to help her in the small farm that we had. And, of course, uh, uh, my father came here in 55. My brother, older brother Tony, followed my father in 1956. And uh, myself, my mother, and three other siblings, we follow, we come to this country in December 1959. So in uh, January 1960, I started my first job in this country. At, At the age not quite of 15. In those days, I think you could start work at 14. Uh, or possible, yes. Possibly, yeah. 
Well, I did, and many and others did too. Yeah. So after working for 12 months, in 12 months I had probably about four different jobs. Some of the company that I was working for, they wanted me to do an apprenticeship. And I was, I was virtually resistant. I didn't want to do an apprenticeship because an apprentice was earning very little money. Uh, but my father and my brother Tony encouraged me to do an apprenticeship. So in, in January 1961, I started my apprenticeship at Parson Journey in North Cabo as a joiner and carpenter. I struggled to get through due to the language, and in particular, I find very, very hard the maths. Those days was imperial, not metric. Yes. Never Isn't done that the... before. <laughs> you can imagine how hard it would have been. But I think, I I think there are a few people who brought up on imperial who had a bit of trouble as well, including me, but anyway. Well, I managed to get through my apprenticeship, even so I filed the first year, uh, and in 1965, at the end of 65, I finished my apprenticeship. And uh, so during the time, we, we have been on site a few times, uh, installing windows, door frames, and, and other bits and pieces. And uh, in 1966, my brother Tony had the opportunity to do some subcontract work. Mm-hmm. Tony was always looking to bear himself to provide for his family. He was married with a couple of children. So uh, he asked me and a very good friend of his if we want to join him because he was going to do subcontract. And uh, in my case, I had nothing to lose. I was... 21 and a half years old. So I said yes right away. And our, our first job was in, was at, was a new SEC building in William Street. Yes, indeed. Monash uh, House? Yes. yes. We start from the bottom. Mm. We start installing toilet petitions. We had to start from somewhere. <laughs> well. And we, we never look back. Well. As I look out the window of the room when we're recording this, I'm looking at the vast, the very vast Chevallo Empire, if you don't mind me saying so. It's pretty impressive because this is probably one of the biggest, uh, well, what would you say, one of the biggest workshops in, anywhere in uh, the industry in this state for sure. Yes, I agree with you. It was, mm. it was. Yep. Uh, the last few years, as I the last uh, until about ten years ago, mm. in this complex, we were employing up to about seven hundred people. Mm. You know how many we have on the floor today? Not even a third of what we had ten years ago. Really. Well, we'll come to that because I'm not up to date with all the comings and goings of the industry, the off-site industry, as possibly I am with the on-site industry. But 
You started on site. Correct. And I've always known you and your business in an on-site context. So going back to the mid-60s, when Tony struck out as a subby and took you and a couple of others with him, uh, you were installing product from who? Parsons or other no, people? No, it was uh, this company that Tony used to work for. The company name was Simac. Uh, oh, right, yes, yes, I remember Cimec. that. No? Yeah. Then become Simac Brooks. Yes. Unfortunately, they, Brooks, which was uh, the big company, Simac, mm. they which took over and did not want the Scavello brothers to do any work for them. Yeah. So we had no choice but to actually, at one stage we were doing, we done a couple of roofing, mm. fixing house, whatever job we could find. And uh, uh, then Tony actually he designed his own a timber post, which was, was a demandable timber partitions. And that's how we started. Mm. Uh, we found other company which we were doing subcontract for. One was called uh, Lewis and Love, mm-hmm. a petition company. Uh, we started to do quite a bit of work for them. Uh, eventually, they didn't do too well. They eventually folded. Uh, but John Love, that he was the owner, he recognized that we always tried to do the right thing by them. And uh, he approached Tony and said, Tony, I owe you so much money. I can not really pay you, but I have got all this aluminum. was a suite that they use on this building of 44 Market Street. was Victoria Insurance, then become New Zealand Victoria Insurance. Yeah. Yeah. So he said, listen, you can take all this material. Also, he recommended the architect and the builder. The builder was Costain, and oh, yes. the, architect, the architect was Stevenson and Turner. Yeah. He recommended that we should take over from him, from their mm-hmm. company, and uh, we did. And that would have been their first breakthrough. So from then on, really, we never looked back. But of yeah. course, you had to work very hard at it. Look, I remember when we first started, and, and even until a few years back, if we had, once we made a commitment, if we had to work Saturday, Sunday, at night, we had to do it. Because we didn't want to let the client down. Mm-hmm. And you kept a lot of clients that way. I believe so. We yes. believe so. Yes. Now, just digressing slightly, you mentioned Market Street and you mentioned Costain. Correct. Was that a 1980s job? No, there was, was an no, earlier one, wasn't late, it? Late 60. Yeah. yeah. Late 60. Because uh, one of your previous interviewees... Uh, was also uh, recently talking about Costains and Market Street and uh, was a little bit more exciting than doing a few installations. <laughs> but never mind. We're still in the 60s. You have, in a way, broken through into 
what I would have thought was probably a fairly closed sector of the industry. The, the companies that did the uh, off-site manufacture, the companies that did the installation were probably long established. They'd been around a long time and probably had done work for the back in the pre-war years for the what the then big companies like Hanson and Yunkin and so on. So how did you go with so much competition who probably would have been quite uh, disposed towards seeing the last of you? I remember those days you had the VAA, mm. ANSEA, CIMEC, they would have been virtually, Simek Brooks would have been the three biggest. Uh, of course, we were hands-on. Yep. We could do the job. And once we made a commitment, mm. we didn't want to let the client down. Mm. This company here, they will look for any excuse to virtually, if they, if they didn't uh, finish the job in time or if they run behind program, they look for any excuse. We never look, we never look for excuses. If we were in trouble, we had to work like Saturday, Sunday nights, we would do that. Yeah. But in the mint, in the same time, we already, we, we would have been, by 1972, we had shifted to a second factory. We built the first one, then become too small after a couple of years, and then we built the second one which we thought were going to be there for about 10, 12 years, which didn't really last that long. Yeah. Uh, uh, then we built a third one. Uh, so we've actually, we've actually increased all the time the, the, the turnover. Mm-hmm. But keep in mind also that we went in, in, in uh, office furniture. No many people realise... But we would have been one, uh, probably the first company that would produce a fully adjustable desktop. Mm. We believe we were the first one. And uh, we never looked back. Uh, uh, Then the government, they start with this, uh, I think they call it RSI. People used to have a problem with their hands. RSI, yes. And they had to have adjustable keyboard, then adjustable top and so on. And uh, yeah, Tony always had a good vision. He visited a few uh, uh, exhibitions overseas, Germany, Italy, and so on. And uh, look, we are where we we are today because of Tony's vision. Mm. He always had the vision uh, of uh, expanding, even virtually diversifying. Because if he would not have diversified many years ago, today we would have been in big, big trouble. Because we, today there is no money in. That's basically because of imports. Correct. Yeah. Correct. When we're, we're jumping around a little bit, but I'm trying to get a feel for how the industry was when you started and how it changed. And the question of cheap imports became a hot issue for you when? I would say it started 
possible until about 2000 and probably 14, 15, mm. we, we were keeping our head above water mm-hmm. in the manufacturing, in the, in the office furniture. Yeah. And I, by memory, after that, say 2014 onwards, had to go downhill because yeah. too many imports and was virtually air com- competitors that were importing everything. Mm. We were still trying to manufacture everything in Kenya, even today. Yeah. We try to manufacture things here. We do import mm-hmm. some as well, uh, but we we give when we press a job, we give uh, uh, we virtually put an, an alternative price. Uh, one imported and mm-hmm. one manufacturer here. Mm-hmm. So they need if they choose the one that we produce here, they had to pay a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's no other way. So between the early 70s and the early 2000s, you were in a position, as I understand it, to basically set the pace. You didn't control the industry or the sector of the industry, but you set the pace because, uh, as you've said, Tony had ideas, but it was also a case of... Chevello were known, had a very good reputation for going in and doing the whole fit out, the whole lot. Correct. And the team that went in was an experienced team and I've seen you in action and it was smooth. There weren't arguments, I'm not saying everything was without problems, but it, in overall comparison to a lot of other people, it was very smooth operation. But then I, I would have thought that through the 80s into the 90s, the big companies that were similar in operation to Chevalo started falling by the wayside. There was a hell of a lot more small companies coming through and they, of course, then got a second lease of life with cheap imports, but... I would have thought the 80s became a bit difficult and by the 90s then with economic circumstances life could become very difficult uh, on a year-to-year basis with office work, not office works, not being uh, undertaken in quite the same way as they'd been, say, going back to the 70s. Do you reckon that's a reasonable summary of what was going on or do you see it somewhat differently? Ralph, no, I believe you're correct. You're correct. We were still, even in the 90s, we were still flourishing. We were uh, increasing our labour. Those days, we used to employ our own people on site, do all the carpentry work, joinery work. Uh, Many other companies, they would subcontract everything. But... Our company, we used to employ our people direct. Including glaziers and... Oh, no glaziers, no. No glaziers, plasterers, though. Plasterers, yes. At one stage, we used to employ our own plasterers. And painters? Painters? Painters. Yes, we had a small, uh, probably about maybe 10, 12 uh, Mm. painters. And if we had extra work, sometimes we had subcontract. Yeah, yeah. But we used to try to do whatever we can within our company and employ our own people. 
And you were diversified also right through 70s, 80s, into the 90s. It wasn't just commercial office work you did. You did government uh, fit-outs. You did medical fit-outs. Whatever job, we never refused. doesn't matter if it was medical fit-out, yep. uh, government work or any type of work. Uh, uh, keep in mind that in the early 90s, we had a, a breakthrough winning the World Bank in America. And that particular project took us all over the world. We were the first company outside Europe to win that project. Uh, nobody thought that someone from Australia would have been able to uh, compete with uh, uh, those American and uh, European company. Uh, they were doing furniture; been doing they've been doing furniture for years. Mm-hmm. But we managed to uh, to win that contract, and that that contract, I think, for about ten ten years, about ten years, the duration. And then with the uh, Russian actually breaking through, we, we had people go and install this furniture all over the world, mm. especially in those Russian country or ex-Russian country. Mm. So that was a very, very good job for us. So you were the personal favourites of Vladimir Putin. <laughs> no, no. I'm tormenting you. <laughs> And but we, it, w- it, we w- it would have been a whole series of those what had previously been uh, Soviet states, uh, yes, yes. Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, yes. and Correct. Belarus, Correct. and all those different. Because yes. they would have started, I guess, needing to establish a whole lot of government and therefore a whole lot of people that to administer it. Yes. So that's where you came in. Yes, and the World Bank, yep. actually, they were... I presume the World Bank had to, had to have to lend the money. I presume, yeah. right? But one person that we had to thank, mm. Toddy will never forget that, was Senator John Button. All oh, right, yes, yes. At one stage, we could not get anything from the Australia Embassy in America. Yeah. When Tony could smell that we had a chance to win this contract, he was not able to get anything from the from Australia Embassy, so he went straight to Mr. John Button and explained to him our situation. And he eventually done everything he could. Uh, and then we got so much help from Australia Embassy in America. So, and just for those people listening who may not understand who John Button was. He was, in fact, a senior cabinet minister yes. in the Hawke government, and uh, he was actually a lawyer by profession, but he got uh, seriously involved in manufacture and, in fact, trying to revitalise the manufacturing sector in Australia. So you did well to have him on your side. Yes, we did. We did. Tony always said, he said, we can never thank him enough for what he done.
and he certainly created a lot of work for people in Australia. However, they were the good times. The bad times are coming, but before we get there, what, looking back now, would be the jobs that you remember fondly? Because there are jobs where architects uh, tell you what you're going to do and other people design it, but you've always had uh, an in-house design capacity and taking the people's drawings that they give you and turning them into something and the innovations that you made, there, there would be some jobs I would have thought that you would go, I'll put that on the, on the list of I'm a very happy man. Well, look, really the design would do in-house was to design a furniture. Mm. If we had to do a project like a fit-out we would use outside designers. Yeah. We, don't, we didn't yeah. have the capacity to use our own design. Mm. Uh, but project that came in mind was one project in Sydney was quite on use. Back in the early, very early 90s, was, uh, those days was very little work. In Melbourne, we had a problem. We had to, we had to make redundant so many of very very good people we had and uh, we were able to pick up this project in Sydney which uh, the the value those days was uh, was about 18 million dollars keeping in mind that the wages for carpenter those days was 12 dollars might have been $12.20 or $12.40 an hour. Yep. Uh, and the side allowance was just over ten, uh, $2 an hour yeah, in the Mel- Melbourne CBD. Uh, approximate, approximate. That was one. Uh, and the next one, of course, Crown. We've done a lot of work there. But, of course, uh, uh, they were very, very, very demanding. Uh, Crown himself, like uh, Mr. Uh, William, uh, I met him a few times at Crown uh, when we were working there. And, of course, uh, Grocon, they were mm. also very demanding. Yeah. They're the, I would say, two major jobs that really stand, uh, stand out. Uh, the one in Sydney, which I virtually... I started the project there myself. Well, my brother Tony said, Joe, he said... I really need you to go to Sydney and look after this project. And uh, the next one, a crown, which I spent a lot, a lot of time there. So how many years were Chevello involved with the fit-out of Crown Casino? From the beginning. So how many years do you reckon that was all up? Oh, gee. From when the drawings hit your desk to the day you walked out, I would have thought that was several years. Yes, yes. We would actually it have been four. Eh? Would have been four years. Oh no, more than that. So we, oh, we've been doing work there until. But the first probably, big job would have been, in fact, over four years. Oh, oh, you mean when they first uh, yeah. built the crown? No, it would not have been four years because that has been done in a very short time. All right. Okay. <laughs> So you just you just been there hanging around for a long time. Oh, no, but, but work kept on coming up. Yes, yes, true. And we had a team there for 
many, I say we had a team there until about probably, oh, about five years ago. Really? And keep it done. We actually redone the tower. Yes. The, the hotel tower. Mm. Uh, that, that was redone probably 10 years ago, approximately. Mm. Uh, and we've done that. So that, that, that actually uh, was a very, very good job for us. Good work that we got. And uh, Crown paid all their bills? Yes, yes. It it their slow, <laughs> but they paid. <laughs> they paid. That's the main thing. I agree with you, yes. Yes. Sometimes uh, people outside the industry don't appreciate how disruptive uh, delays in payment can be. Oh. And we have a 60-day uh, contract and it runs out to 120 days before you get the money. And yes, that has destroyed a lot of very good subcontractors over the years. I didn't realise you knew that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There is a lot of common interest in, in our industry between workers and employers uh, because the people, unfortunately, who tend to make the most money uh, can never quite get enough. And if they can hang on for it a little bit longer, that's what they'll do. But anyway, we're now looking at the move to Tullamarine. When did that take place? Because this is a huge investment. We've actually, from 46 Moor Road, which was our second factory, mm-hmm. we went to Tullamarine Park Road. Mm-hmm. We started with a small, recent factory. It wasn't small. Then we made an extension. was in the corner of Prima Court and Tullamarine Park Road. Then uh, that was become smaller, so we bought some land next door and we built another factory next door. Then that becomes smaller, so we build a factory ac- across the road. Then uh, uh, Tony bought another bit of land there uh, for distribution, mm-hmm. which we still have today, mm-hmm. rented. Uh, then Tony's dream was always to consolidate everything under one roof. So the opportunity come when they put the West uh, Western Ring Road. Western Ring Road. Yep. True. This was part of Caterpillar. When that West Ring Road went through, so they've actually physically separated. Separated. Yeah. So this land was for sale, and we were able to get the money from the bank, eventually buy the, the land. There is one old factory. On that side, so we shift in there first, and then we extend it slowly to where we are today. And then, once we build the factory, then we put the office on. And that would have been, I would say, we probably purchased this thanks to the banks, probably around about, uh, I would say, 93.94 approximately. And that was probably the best thing we ever done. Uh, but today we are looking to consolidate it to lease part of this. Yeah. Because if if you go around the factory, it's virtually it's nearly a ghost town. Yeah. So in terms of on-site manufacturing, what percentage 
compared to the glory days, what percentage do you reckon it is now? About 10%, 10% of what you used to be able to do? At their prime, I would say yes. Yeah. At their prime. Maybe 15. Yeah. Maybe 15. Today, we have, uh, at one stage, we had about, on site, we had about a couple of hundred employees. Today, we've got about 15. Mm. I'd give you an example. Oh. Well, that's the sort of percentages that I was thinking, and uh, you've confirmed that. Now, that has been, in terms of employees, traumatic at the time, but given the boom that's been going on in the industry now for 20 years, people were able to relocate themselves in terms of work and things have continued. But the company would also have a whole lot of people in management, designers, all sorts of people who are part of the infrastructure of uh, Chevalo Group, who are probably a lot less now than they used to be as well. Oh, definitely. And that might have been a bit more traumatic. Well, it's always traumatic mm. when you haven't got work and you had to make people redundant. Mm. It is traumatic. It's mm. bloody traumatic, okay? All right. Because uh, when you actually flourish, you employ extra people, everyone is happy. Mm. But when the work's not down, you cannot make people redundant on the floor and keep the overhead. You can't do that. And really, a company's got no choice Mm. but to do what you have to do. Yes, uh, uh, it's always said, uh, especially when you have to fast them, which I have done that many times, I've felt that you have to be virtually up front mm. and just expose them, mm. pair things up. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, you had to do that, but mm. someone has to do it. Now, people don't necessarily, <clears throat> unless they've lived and worked the industry, they don't necessarily understand the dynamics. But one of the aspects which is a little bit different for the on-site people is there is always a bit of uh, movement, a bit nomadic. You go where the work is, you get fed up with one particular boss or something and you go off somewhere else. And that is sort of in the background, it's always conscious in your mind. But how, how not having experienced it, how do you go with um, a more sedentary workforce in factory situation? They, they would... Because they're not moving from job to job, even with one company, they they feel a bit more ownership of a factory. I would have thought a factory circumstance. I would have thought. Does that make it even harder? Or yes, it, it makes it very hard, especially when you have got uh, people that have been work for the company twenty, thirty, forty years. We had one person. About four years ago, he clocked 50 years. But 25, 30 years, mm. we have so many of them. Yeah. In fact, when you leave, I'll show you the board there. We've got a board there, everyone who makes 25 years. And uh, it's always said 
where the works are there. Uh, yes, uh, in some cases you got to four hours a week. If they are virtually, if they agree to it. Mm. Uh, but on the finish, if you can see there is not light at the end of the tunnel, a tunnel, mm. you have to make the tough decision, explain to him what things are, and you have to go to residency. There's no choice. Mm. Now, in the history of Chevello as a one, a manufacturer to a principal contractor in many areas like Crown. How many times have you been hit with the economic circumstances that make uh, continuing operations as they were impossible? I would have thought the early 90s would have knocked you around big time and before that the early 80s was also a in personal experience, there are times where it was very difficult to find work. I remember the early 90s. Mm-hmm. That was extremely hard. Uh, I mentioned before that uh, in Melbourne, we had to virtually let go people, uh, very, very good tradespeople, uh, which, you know, let's hope that uh, we don't have to go through that again. Uh, but we did those that. There was was very, very hard, very hard. Now, here's the here's $64,000 question. Those people that went in the early 90s, when things started to pick up in the mid to late 90s, did you get them back? Some of them, yes. Some of them, yeah? Some of them, yes. Some of them were very happy to come back. Of course. And other people yeah. simply moved on. Yes, sometimes you move on. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, they find themselves, they, they find a, a good job slowly. And uh, But some of them, they did come back. We had people that virtually they come back two or three times, maybe more. We had one person in the office, he, he come back to us five times. You couldn't get rid of him even if you wanted to. <laughs> you know what? He was a very, very, very good like yeah. very experienced unfortunately was getting sick of it mm. and any problem it would just it would just live mm. the problem is then you need his experience yeah. and when they apply for the job and I say Andrew come on come on let's hope that this is not not going to do something as last time he said oh, no 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 you know he said I intend to stay and at least not exaggerating might have been more than five times. And this person here was involved when we done the hit night club at Crown. Yep. And I can tell you that if it was for this fellow here, his mm. name was Andrew McKenzie, mm. it would have been very hard for us to achieve mm. what, what we did achieve at, uh, at the hit night club. Mm. Even in the uh, worst of times, there's always a bit of give and take. Oh, yes. yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Because that really is what this show is about, and that is that the, we're creatures of the industry. We come into it and we don't ever really leave. And we're, the industry is in, ingrained in us and we're ingrained in the industry. So how do you feel, looking back now on those early periods... 70s, 80s, how do you feel looking back now about that time? Was that a time where you really 
thought, this is something worth doing and I'm, I'm really happy. I'm, you know, it's a bit tough at times, but... We've always been happy. Yep. Some people ask me the question, what would you change if you had to change something? Mm. I wouldn't change anything. Mm. Uh, but one thing that I would like to, to bring up is that uh, uh, in the old days, as you know, as you well know, you work for a company. Those days was no super not uh, uh, redundancy. redundancy. Mm. The best thing that was brought in might have been by the Labour government due to the union push mm. was to virtually bring re- the, the, the redundancy and the uh, oh. bus you pay into a fund. Yep. There was... In and my lo- opinion, and the long service leave as well. The, in my opinion, that was the best thing that happened to the industry. Mm. Because it doesn't matter where you work, it's paid in into a fund, and you don't have to start with a company seven or eight or ten years. You can stay six months, 12 months, mm. whatever, yep. and then it's always yours. Yep. And uh, people don't feel the need to go chasing dollars. No. Uh, Working for people that maybe they wouldn't want to work for otherwise. <laughs> anyway, now we've got to the nineties. We've looked at the big job, which was really the casino. That was like Crown Casino was the biggest job in Melbourne. Uh, after the Rialto in the late seventies, early eighties, Crown Casino was was it. Are there other jobs? that you think have had an impact on Melbourne? Something that, you know, the obvious is Rialto, the obvious is Eureka, that they're big jobs, they're huge jobs. The amount of man hours that went into them, the cost of the materials and all that, it's extraordinary. There's sometimes jobs which, when you look back on them, are actually as good or as, as important to the building of Melbourne as, as a job like the Rialto. Does anything jump into your mind? No. The only would be Rialto. We've done a lot a lot of work there. Mm. Uh, but maybe we've done all the toilet blocks in the building mm. uh, and then we've done a lot of work fit out in the building. Mm. Uh, uh, and then, of course, Crown. Apart from that, I really can't think of any other virtually major, major project. Mm. Well, there's been a lot of refit jobs and, and that. Um, Manchester Unity, uh, historic buildings which have been fitted out. Have you done much of that sort of work? or no. Whereas they make them into apartments or offices and so on. I mean, St Kilda Road, I mean... The number of jobs down there uh, is extraordinary. Do you do any work in some of those bigger jobs down domain and buildings Look, like that? We would have done some of the work, mm. but when you uh, uh, you can't compare to when Rialto was built, you mm. had two towers next to each other, measured mm. together, and uh, Crown, which was a very big project. Uh, 
which had been until a very short time. Mm. I can't really think of any other major project that we were involved. Yeah, yeah. Is there a favourite project through through all the journey, not just uh, early jobs, but all the way through? Is there any favourite jobs? The jobs where you just have a little smile on your face when you think about it. Look, it has been quite a few. Mm. Uh, one, as I mentioned, was uh, Clutter Newts in Sydney, and number one, O'Connell Street. Uh, uh, I would say because I was, I was there myself, yeah. and uh, I did spend a few nights on that project. Yes. And they just stay in your mind. Yeah. And on top of that, the project manager, which was CRI, I think it was, they won, they won uh, I think it was the best project for the year or whatever. And uh, Bud Smart, Jeff Kopolov, he was the designer. He also won, I think, the Sign of the Year Award. Mm. For the for the project, uh, so I was very very happy to actually see uh, that. Well, put this way, the, the project was uh, was uh, was uh, a very successful project. Yeah. Now, just looking back, and I'm not trying to trap you. Are there any jobs that you look back now and think they weren't good jobs? Not in terms of you know, industrial blues and that, but just jobs which from a subcontract point of view were just a bit of a disaster that you wish you hadn't put your signature on the paper. Ralph, in the last few years, we, the management, we made some very bad decisions and have been few jobs that we wish we would have never priced those projects. Fair enough. One uh, was in uh, Blackburn. It was a Blackburn shopping centre. Uh, was about two or three others, which cost us a lot of money. Mm. But we can only blame ourselves mm. for the decision we made. Yes, uh, was put forward to us. And uh, we were convinced it's the way to go, but unfortunately, mm. we made some very bad decisions. Now, there are also a third class of jobs, and that is jobs that didn't seem to be going too well, but in the end worked out. They somehow came together and you went, well, probably you, you ran your fingers across your brow and went, whoa, glad we got through that one, okay, but... Like a, a job like M City, that was a huge job. Had a lot of complex problems. How was that job for Chevello? I mean, you were involved in it. Was it? Did it end up a good job, or just just have a whole lot of issues, which, which is the nature of the design and and so on. I mean, Ralph, we were the developer. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm not going to dob you in. See, Multiplex was the builder. Yeah, yeah. But that that was a job which I would have thought was an extremely difficult job for reasons which are a bit hard to understand. 
But it ended up getting done, didn't it? Yes. Good. What's happened, actually, that was a joint venture. Yeah. Uh, we had a partner, which this partner, they own the land. They own the land. Hmm. And they approached us. We knew each other for about probably 50 years. Hmm. But we never done a joint venture together. Yeah. And... Uh, Eventually, uh, the the partner spoke to Tony and said, Tony, I got this project. Are you willing to let you come and let's do it together? Tony thought about them. Uh, we never had any problem with this uh, uh, company. And we thought, well, why not? Mm. Unfortunately, thing, things didn't work out the way they should have. And become a point that... Uh, Either we stop the project mm. and would cost us a lot of money, yeah. both venture, both joint venture, uh, and we felt that I had very little to do, but Tony and Peter virtually said, look, we can't keep going the way we're going. Either you take it or we take it. Mm. So the decision was uh, we virtually uh, bought them out, but it was not easy. Yeah. It was a lot of sleepless, not for me, but Tony and Peter, sleepless night because we were struggling to get the loan from the bank. Mm. Yeah. Uh, eventually, INZ and Westpac come to the party. Mm. But we've had to virtually, we had to give them every title we had. Mm. <laughs> but it worked out okay. Yeah. It worked better than what we had anticipated. Mm. So, Well, in terms of developers, I understand that sort of dynamic. But in terms of principal subcontractors, maybe even minor contractors, is there jobs... Well, I don't want you to sort of point the finger or name names or anything like that. I just... There is a, always, it seems to me, to be a problem with jobs which just don't start right. And then you get to a point where you're in too deep and you just got to finish it. And then everyone breathes a sigh of relief because it's done. But have you, over your journey, have you had a number of jobs like that which has made it very hard to keep the business going? Back at the stage where you're involved hands-on rather than in a financing sort of uh, circumstance. When Toy and I were heavily involved, when I say heavily involved, we're talking about being on the tools. Yeah. We virtually could see if something was getting out of control and you tried to strike them up before you end up shit. Mm. In the last, say, probably 10, 15 years, things change. You're not as young as you used to be. Yep. You have got other people uh, that you trust. And unfortunately, in some cases, you find that when it's virtually too late. Mm. But until today, we never walked away from any project. Mm. We still managed to finish the project. Yes, we lost you know, 
quite a few dollars, but we did finish every project that we start. So you've now been in business for just about 50 years. 60. 60. Oh, yeah. 50, 57. 57, right. I'll stand correction. I told you my maths <laughs> isn't great. Um, but in that time, you, mentioned, you did mention before about uh, the funds for employees. Are there things that you reckon have occurred in the industry which you look back and go, these are the sorts of things which has made the industry good for everybody? And I think the ones you've mentioned have been good for business. And CBUS in particular has been good for business in two aspects. And one's been the super and two has been the willingness of CBUS to invest back in the industry where most of their members and contributors are. Uh, I think that's probably been a a pretty good uh, outcome for a lot of people. And would you share that enthusiasm? Yes, I agree. I agree. 100% 100% has been good for the industry, yes. And now we have a CBUS which has got incredible assets around uh, the country in terms of buildings and shopping centres and God knows what. I am sorry that I am sorry that my super is not in CBUS. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine is, so don't stuff it up. All right, now, in terms of people... And the people you've worked with, the people you've met, the people you, you've had, you know, interchange with over the years. There's been some outstanding uh, people who have had a lot to offer and to give to, to the industry. Not just the politicians like John Button, he did a good job, but, I mean, there are a lot of people in the industry, and I don't know that the quality of project managers, foremen. It doesn't seem to be that eye for detail. We had a little discussion about eye for detail before we started this interview, but the eye for detail, the the meticulous way things used to be done, they're a bit slower, but they seem to be a lot more effective in the long term. How do you feel about that? My opinion is that this days, mm. builders... They employ young people straight from university. Mm. These young people, they're very good on right email and blame the contractor for everything under the sun. Are you behind this and that? In the old days, we had uh, a builder. They employ the site manager, the former on the project, the leading hand, they were ex trades people mm. and good trades people. If you need assistance, you ask them, they were there to help you. These guys, they're not there to help you. They're only there to write emails and eventually point you to the, to the schedule, your behind schedule, and to the contract. And they have, my opinion, they have no bloody idea. <laughs> now you've heard also, it first. <laughs> also, they rely on the contractor, yeah. on the contract to virtually, no one check anything. The co- it's up to the contract to sign everything. Mm. Do they check it? Many of them, they don't. They just sign it. 
it's done. It's been checked. Well, one of the aspects of it all that I think is the preparation for the legal case rather than the preparation for the handover. <laughs> That's the way I'd summarise it. And I think that is probably an aspect of the industry which has deteriorated. The scale of the industry now compared to when you and I came into it all those years ago uh, has you know, ballooned beyond our certainly my comprehension. I never thought the industry would be as big as it is now. But it's actually, in some ways, less people employed per head of production, per unit of production, than there was going back 20, 30 years. And the work um, has undergone a lot of technological change and I guess the test of time will be when there's an earth tremor and we'll see... See how the cracks go. Not a very positive attitude, I must agree, but it is something that uh, would be of concern. Well, let's hope that uh, we don't have that. No. But, yes, I agree with you. It is a concern the way today the building apartment, uh, uh, a building mm. as economical as they possible can. Mm. And let's hope that will last I believe in the next maybe 20, 30 years, yes, I think we can have problems, I think. Well, What is your opinion? Yeah, well, this is the sort of image that comes back to me. Some of the biggest demolition jobs in the city weren't things like uh, CUB in South Carlton. I mean, that was a 19th century building. I'm thinking about buildings like uh, the CRA building in Collins Street, the gas and fuel towers in Flinders Street. They were major construction jobs back in the 60s and early 70s and the demolition was an extraordinary undertaking because they were incredibly well built. I mean, there's no doubt about it. There was no precast in them. In fact, uh, they were bricked. Bricks. The, ex, the, the veneer was brick. Yes, I remember that. I was going to say they were brick, uh, yeah. the gas and fuel. Yeah. They were standing there like... And they could withstand just about anything, I reckon. But as things speed up, I think the quality has gone down. Or maybe I'm just an old man who's getting grumpy. But I just think there is uh, a, a need for people to be a little bit questioning about just what is being produced now. I'm not saying there aren't good buildings being produced, but there's one down the road from me, which I reckon was built in about 2015, and the scaffold's just come off it for a complete uh, refurb, and that took over 12 months. And the whole thing just leaked from day one. And you just go, how is this happening? And then you see the Victorian Building Authority, they've had to tip the whole board of directors out because the job's not getting done and people are putting their good money in the way of these developers and builders and that and they just produce crap. End of paid political announcement. <laughs> no, no, I, I, share you. I do share your opinion. Mm. I believe we have a problem because... Developer, they try to build, put up a building, 
as cheap as possible. Mm. We had uh, two or three, we had Primatea, which we employ multiplex. Uh, Abod in Russell Street, which was uh, prop-built, I think. Mm. Mm. And, of course, uh, MCD, which we had uh, multiplex. Mm. And I don't think you can employ better builders than these builders here. Mm. Even so, the now multiplex, they went... Mm. Bank, so, but they were they were reasonable good builders, multiplex. Mm. So, but I do share up your opinion of all this build that gone up. They try to build them as cheap as they possibly can mm. to maximize their their profit. So, let's be a little bit controversial without sort of saying the the world the end of the world is coming. But when it comes to fit outs, which is your go, not mine, but the fit-outs these days uh, is the same quality going in as you would have expected to be demanded of you as a subcontractor back in the day? Okay, the fit-out that, that is done these days, hmm. generally, it's not as good as it used to be, say, 30 years ago, hmm. 20, 30 years ago. Hmm. That's my opinion. Yeah. So there's some of them like uh, the National Bank building in Docklands was probably, I would have thought, a pretty good job structurally and in terms of fit-out. But um, a lot of them are just, well, they leave a bit to be desired, I would have thought. Other than the National Bank, but uh, we've done very little work there, mm. but we've done a lot of work at ANZ Bank mm. at Docklands. Yeah, well, yeah, that was a big job. It was two towers, yeah. a big footprint. Yeah, a very big yeah. footprint, and it's the footprint sat on the old um, power station, coal-fired power station, a briquette-fired power station, which all had to be dug out, uh, which Abbey Group did back in the early two thousands. The fact that they were even able to dig it out and God knows where the material went because it was just absolute disgrace. But to to build a, a building on top of that uh, riverside uh, plot of land is was pretty remarkable job. They did, I must say, I've been critical of uh, Lend-Lease over the years, or Civil and Civic as it was previously known. They did a pretty good job in uh, a few areas. But... Uh, it hasn't been easy, I think, uh, in Docklands in particular. But I wasn't aware of that. I know mm. we we done uh, a lot of work there for the for landlords, mm. uh, and uh, I was happy with uh, with uh, the finish. Yep. that we were up to achieve. Uh, yeah, no, I was I was I was pleased. So, how do you think uh, the result of the COVID epidemic is going to affect the industry given that there is now a uh, reluctance of many office-type workers uh, to uh, actually want to come to the office. That must be creating a big impact as well on top of the cheap imports. Very big impact. We, you've got the problem with China imports... Then you've got the problem that people don't want to go back to the office. So the office fit out 
uh, virtually you can start becoming a standstill. And of course, then you have got company that with uh, uh, the virtually shrink. When I say shrink, is uh, they make people redundant. If they employ say ten thousand people next year, they employ they virtually dismiss make a thousand redundant. Mm. So they have nine thousand, and so on and so on and so on. So the office figure to keep on shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. So you can see where we have problems trying to produce office furniture in this country. Uh, uh, it's due to the imports and due to uh, uh, office people. They don't want to go back to their, to their office. Uh, even so that some of the companies try to get them to the office at three days a week and they're resisting. Now, with the other parts of the fit-out industry, the petitioning, the toilets, the, all those things that were, I'm not saying a huge part of the industry, but they're always there. Has that also gone the way of office furniture? Or is there still basically part of the sector hanging on to uh, jobs like the uh, stations in the uh, Metro Tunnel project? And uh, is that keeping some people going, you know, not necessarily Chevelle because you don't do that work, but what do you reckon? Is, uh, some of these major infrastructure projects, hospitals, and that actually keeping people alive in terms of their businesses and keeping people employed? Yes, uh, there is some work there even for us. Uh, we, we're not really doing those uh, toilet petition. We used to do it in the old days, especially when we first started, we used to install them. Uh, but there is work there. Uh, but keep in mind that these days, you have got so many more subcontract mm. that we had, say, in the 70 and 80. A company uh, closed down, a company goes, say, closed down for whatever reason, got broke or whatever, and then you might have out of those companies, you might have about three or four that form two or three companies inside themselves. Yeah. So you have got more competition. And uh, this dies, the way, the way I see it, a builder, when they have a contract, they virtually draw a contract. If the, build, if the subcontract back a mistake, they can send them broke. Mm. Yep. And they will employ someone else to virtually carry out the work. They might, might if they already pay the subcontract, they might, might cost them a premium yep. to finish it. But uh, I believe today it's very, very easy for the builder to send a subcontract block mm. because the condition they put in the contract and the condition that we all except it's ridiculous. Mm. And the timelines are impossible. Now, thinking about where the industry is now takes us to the future. And while we can't, we can't predict the future, the future's unwritten, there are trends that are taking place right across the industry in all the different sectors. 
In terms of the off-site sector and the fit-out sector, where do you think it's going? Are you confident that it will bounce along, bounce back, or continue to get smaller and messier? I think we'll continue to have uh, more competition, Mm. more contractors. More problems. And possible more downhill. Because even if you have a contract that you intend to do a good job, mm. for the price that the contract has to do the work, there is too much competition. And who is the builder going to give the work to? One of the cheapest. Cheapest, yeah. He's not prepared to pay mm. a higher price because you do a better job than someone else. Mm. Even though that can produce a quicker finish a better quality finish. Oh, yes. yes. And you can even, on some jobs, and I've not, I'm not going to say I've been on those jobs, uh, as some bosses would uh, like to remind me, but there are jobs that uh, actually finish ahead of time and end up doing very nicely in terms of the outcome for all the participants. And without sort of uh, trying to be too controversial... Grocon jobs used to be pretty good jobs for subcontractors. Yes, um, yes. The brothers would actually keep uh, paying subbies on a weekly, fortnightly, monthly basis rather than wait for 40, 60 days, whatever, actually, to keep them going. If they were good subcontractors, they kept them going and they got their jobs finished. There's a lot of other criticisms I'll have of the Grocon company uh, under all its different managements, but in terms of subcontractors, blokes were looked after as long as they were trying to do the right thing. Did the wrong thing, it was another matter, but that was for sure. But that's not uh, a common attitude these days. I agree with you because we started to do work for Grollo mm. at Rialto, and we've done lots of work there. Then they knew us, we knew them, and they always, they always prefer in many cases for us to do the work. We press the jobs, and some cars they come back and say, listen, you know, we really want you to do the work, but can you have a look at the price? <laughs> but They're in business, I understand. Always, uh, as I, but keep in mind the grow law, they used to virtually build their own building. Mm. Uh, many others... They should do it for a developer. Yeah. This days. Mm. We're talking about Grollo when was Reno and Bruno Grollo. Mm. Their days. Not after. Mm. After things change. I think we all know that. Yes. But until they were in charge, Grollo was very, very good. Mm. Very good. I certainly did some quality buildings. I had had a few arguments. Um, with uh, Grocon management and other people. But anyway, never mind that. We're, we're trying to be positive about where the industry is going. And do you think maybe the in- industry is reaching saturation points so that the margins are getting reduced because people want to make money uh, with new developments, but it's getting harder and harder to get those developments uh, Completed and with full occupations and all the rest of it. Is that 
Are we reaching saturation point, I guess I'm saying? I believe so. And the population in our lifetimes is, well, more than doubled. More than doubled. We're over 5 million people and heading for 8 million people. And I think uh, when I started in the industry, it was probably about 2 million people, the whole of Melbourne. Now you can have 2 million people within probably 15, 20k of Melbourne, centrally. Look, I really believe the industry has been saturated. Mm. And, and the developer tried to make a, as much as money, doesn't matter if you build apartment, in general it's apartment mm. size. Uh, of course then the developer tried to make as much money, the builder tried to do as cheap as possible, so imply whatever contract they find, so they can make they have to make the small profit as well, mm. and I think the builders days. I don't believe that they make who knows what. Mm. I believe they the profit they make will be very very little if they probably if they probably put the money in the bank, put on term deposit, they make more money than yeah. the proper building. Mm. That's my opinion. Yeah. Hence some of the uh, Japanese companies have come to Australia because the interest is non-existent in the bank in uh, Japan. So even 2% is a profit margin for a Japanese construction company. Well, and I'm, not I, gonna, I'm not naming any names. I'm just making an observation. No, no, but you're right, you're right. So Chevello are very much creatures of the industry. You don't just blow in and blow out. You actually came to stay and you're still here. We are committed. Yes. We've been committed there for, what, I say 55 plus years yep. since 1966. has been a long time. Now, we've gone round, we've got right up to date, we've even had a look into uh, the future. When you started, you were, what, 21? Yes. You started your apprenticeship and what union did you join back in those days? Honestly, I joined, when I was a Parsons, mm. I joined the, I can't remember which one. Was it the Carpenters then Union or the Timber Workers? I, no, 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 it wasn't, it was, I think it might have been ISC and J. Yeah, ISC and J, yeah, that'd been. probably be right. Uh, then I would have been with ISC and J for quite some time. Mm. Then I joined the BWU. Yep. And... Uh, these days, I am a member of uh, CFMU Construction there you go. and CFMU Manufacture. There you go. You've got them all covered. <laughs> now, in terms of your time on the tools, at the end of it, off the tools and you're supervising and managing jobs and all the rest of it, in those days, even though, as you said earlier, the math, the math was a bit of a problem with the apprenticeship, but the hand skills and all the rest of it, the knowledge of the processes that come to in terms of using the tools and making the uh, petitions, installing the petitions, making the, the office furniture, installing the office furniture. Were you a happy about? Were you happy about your time as a tradesman? And do you think you ended up a good tradesman? Without 
You know, I pat was, yourself on the back. You know, just do you look back and go, yeah, I was okay. Yes, I was always a hand-on person, mm. always hands-on. And I do believe that I, I end up a reasonable good tradesman. What I can tell you, when I done my apprenticeship, uh, Brunswick Tech, the one my, and only. <laughs> on my four, fifth year, which, sorry, was my fourth, mm. but but was my fifth year at work because yeah. I failed the first year. Yeah. I got, on my final exam, I got 96 out of 100 for practice. That was the highest anyone had at Brunswick Tech. And you should be proud of that. And the trades, just me need to create that attitude that to be a tradesman, to be a good tradesman, is actually a success. Yes, I am uh, very, very happy. Uh, even my brother Tony is uh, uh, what we've been able to achieve, the success mm. we had. Mm. And, and Tony, he was always a very, very good uh, uh, tradesperson. Mm. Uh Got back on my apprenticeship was not really a big deal because I had 96 out of 100. Mm. Keep in mind the practice that I had when I started my apprenticeship back in when I was nine years old, mm. official 21, really, I had a big advantage mm. over the rest of the uh, uh, apprentices. And when we finish, I'll show you something that I'd done to school, I to go to my office. Mm. That, that was done, say, 58 years ago. You can see the way the workmanship, mm. as an, even so, an, as an apprentice, and the way stand all these years after 50, say, 57, 58 years. And just to be a little bit uh, controversial or a little bit testing... It takes two people to produce a good tradesman, the apprentice and his employer. Do you think, just looking back now over the journey, do you think employers as a group, not Chevello or you individualising, but in terms of the industry, do you think employers have done enough to not just preserve the trade, but actually improve the trades? Or have things sort of got a little bit uh, dissipated? Too much concern with the, with the bottom line and not enough with the product, the human product. Yeah. I'm putting you on the spot, I know, but... Generally, I don't believe that the employer done enough mm-hmm. to employ apprentices. Scavello as a company, I believe we've done more than enough. Mm. On one stage, we had about 58, 60 apprentices year after year. Mm. And many of our apprentices, they end up virtually leaving the company and go and work for themselves. Mm. And you know what? I am very, very proud to see them doing that. They are the apprentices in general. They put in, they become very good tradesmen, 
and uh, and of course then you have to understand they they have the opportunity they live and some of them are still with us in fact in fact we had to make some redundancy about two or three months ago and some of us uh, uh, there were apprentices they finished their trade very good tribespeople and don't you think they feel that? Yes. Unfortunately, you can only wish them all the best. Yeah. Righto. So, probably coming to the end, we've covered a, a pretty big range of items. Now, I always put it to, to people that you look back, is there a person, an experience, an incident that you look back and go, with a smirk on your face and go, that was okay. That was a good bloke. That was. Is there something that, that sort of just sits there in your mind and it just pops up every now and then? I think back to some things that happened in the industry and I'm amused when we got away with it, or two, uh, the bloke was just someone who just stood out as a person who just had a lot to give to the people he worked with. I really can't can't think. Uh, I really can't think of any. Well, I'm going to put one on you. Yeah, please do. Your brother, Tony. You've mentioned him a couple of times. I mean, am I overstating it, or he he has driven this company from day one, and he has made innovations, which has been able to be exported around the world. I think he's deserving of a bit more of a mention because he's still he's still at the head of the company isn't he yes yes in fact Tony is a work today is he <laughs> he still works and how old is Tony every day 85 85 there you go folks there's a future for all of us <laughs> Tony for Tony the work it's a hobby for him. Mm. Even to say, what am I going to do at home? So Tony has been, how would I say, I personally always looked up to Tony. Mm. Uh, he's seven years older than me. Uh, but he always, Tony has got respect mm. from everyone in the industry. I don't mm. believe it's anyone that does respect Tony. Mm. Everyone do. And uh, and uh, and keep it in mind that he had uh, a wife mm. that she was extraordinary woman. That uh, if it wasn't for her, the beast would not be anywhere near where the beast is today. Mm. She was a silent partner, a partner, but, you know, mm. uh, Elder, she was just excellent. Mm. Uh, uh, did hit Tony very hard when she passed away. Yeah. She was very good. So the Chevelle story is, one, an industry story, but it's also a family story, and it's, and it's been really terrific to sit here and actually think about a very long period of time and a lot of success. 
But what's Joe Chevello doing now? Coming to work? Yes. And anything else you've got going as a hobby? No, not really, not really. I plumb my gum at 10 on Sunday morning mm. with uh, three others. Mm. Then we're going to have a cup of coffee. That's it. Yep. And make them wine? We actually uh, wine, we, we make wine every year yep. at the farm. Yep. I, uh, I was there about, about two or three months ago, and before that, I haven't been there for about five years. Right. So you like having a, an occasional drink of it, but uh, you don't really take a lot of interest in uh, the production. Right. Now, I, might, I must also say that there are a lot of olive trees planted around this uh, large site, and you produce a very nice extra virgin olive oil. Thank you. Very limited edition. Yes. But very, very nice. You only put it on uh, salad. Don't don't use it for cooking. No, no. We, we ne- I never do. And do you help make the oil? Or do you just supervise? No. <laughs> we usually we have someone, the organise to pick the olives. Yep. Then we'll take to be processed. Yep. And then whenever it's time, we'll eventually bottle and, the, and bring the bottle full of oil. Yeah. You distribute it. Well, look, we just give away to friends and yes. so on. And, uh, right. Uh, and I've got, I'll, I'll put my hand up here, I've got a bottle of oil to take home to my beloved and revered, who in fact thinks it's one of the best products she's ever had. Thank you. Joe, Mrs Edwards, she's got a very good taste. Yes, that's correct. Not sure why she married me. But anyway, Joe Chevello, thank you very much for this. Uh, interview today. It's all part of building the history of the industry in Melbourne and Victoria since the 1960s and I say it and it sort of seems a bit glib maybe but she's a lot of people have been fed, clothed and housed by this industry and we've all got through it and we've survived and I think it's a wonderful thing. Yep, that is including my family. Yes. Tony's family and many other families. That's, it's all the families, yep. Yep. Ralph, thank you. Thank you very thank much. You. Has been a lot, lot easier, much easier than what I expected. There you go. We're, I said we'd have a chat and we've had a very nice yes. chat. Thank you very much. Thank you. You have been listening to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews about the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And whether we were born here or born in Italy, in Greece, in Spain or Ireland, in England or Fiji, We all of us are workers, united we must stand Until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land We faced deregistration, it backfired in the face We're not fooled by arbitration, we won't stay in our place 
We hit the bosses hard and fast to win and keep our gains And break a couple of concrete pours to back our lug of claims So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed Our builder's labour is a name to make a man feel 